Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's John Farrell and Tom Keen on American Banks, and there's no better place to be than with uh, Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital uh, Markets. Gerard, we were just talking about the minting of money. You look at operating income on an annual basis of so many banks, and it sure looks like minting money. Is that the right phrase? Tom, I think it's correct. In fact, if you look at the industry, this will be the fourth consecutive year of record profitability. Now, granted, we have the lower tax rates that have contributed to that. But even when you take those out, we are going into our fourth year of record profitability for the banking industry. The most interesting come since 2011 from the Bank of America lending business this morning, Gerard. Clearly higher rates are translating into a higher net interest margin at some of these big lenders in America. Clearly higher rates are translating into higher interest income. None of this, though, seems to be translating into stock price outperformance. Why not, Gerard? You, 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 you framed it properly, and I would suggest that what we hear from many investors today is the expression late cycle. And they're concerned that the U.S. economy is not going to be able to maintain this growth, and therefore, why do I need to own a bank? If the U.S. economy grows the way we think it will, similar to the way it grew after the Kennedy tax cuts in the 60s and the Reagan tax cuts in the 80s, I think you'll see investors come on board to the banks very shortly here. So, Gerard, the loan growth that you and I have been talking about for quite a few quarters now, are you slowly seeing it come through? We are for, for the industry. What's interesting is that if you look at the weekly data, it comes out every Friday afternoon. This past week, it was up around 4.5% year-over-year growth. That's up from about 2% at the beginning of the year. So you're seeing it creep up. However, amongst the biggest banks, the top 25 banks, that growth is still on a year-over-year basis in the low 2% range. But the smaller banks are growing loans close to 10% year-over-year. So there's a real market share battle going on. Well, within the market share battle is the word that I, I think, Gerard, you wrote about it in about 1954, scale. <laughs> scale is nothing. Come on. Scale is the merger, grab deposits, cut costs, right? You is that got what it. scale is? Oh, Tom, I think you're spot on. Now I throw in, in from 1954, it wasn't as much about technology as it is today. So the technology spend is also okay. scale. So Bank of America, five years from now, I got them listed at 208,000 bodies. Maybe, I'm, I'm guessing off the top of my head, it used to be 240,000. I don't know. Where's that number in five years or 10 years? If they continue to grow, they're, they're done with their you know, significant downsizing from the crisis, as we know. Um, now they're actually adding people, and as they continue to grow organically. Remember, our banking sector went through enormous consolidation as a result of the Clinton, President Clinton signing national interstate banking in the early 90s. This bank, Bank America, has over a 10% deposit market share. They're prohibited from acquiring any depository. Now they have to grow organically, and that's what they're doing. It's quite interesting that we're talking about competition to issue more loans, um, Gerard, at a time when Marcus, the unit of Goldman Sachs, is pulling back on its targets for next year. What do you make of that? What's the signal that comes from that? 
I think under the new leadership at Goldman, uh, under David Solomon, he's taken a, a, a step back and wants to make sure that they're going in the right direction. And I think the Marcus pullback is part of that thinking. Um, I believe that when we see the new Goldman Sachs in about six months, there will be a more comprehensive lending product than not just a Marcus product. But that being said, I think Goldman you know, jumped into consumer lending, which is a very competitive area, and they're probably now want to reassess to make sure that this is the area they want to go in. You mentioned the new Goldman Sachs. What's the new Goldman Sachs going to look like, Gerard? What is it? I think they have um, some sort of look that is going to be more similar to the J.P. Morgan Universal Bank look. I believe you're going to see less emphasis on trading, more emphasis on total financial solutions to their corporate and commercial customers, and there'll be yeah. more of a commercial bank. So, you know, you're going to write a 40-page, like, you know, into-the-end-of-the-year memo, whatever. I'm sure you're working on it already now. And all of that is trying to game the next merger. And I know what you're going to tell me and your lawyers have told you you can't talk about that. Okay, guess what? You're going to talk about it. What flavor of bank will be part of the combinations? Who will be the combinator and who will be the combinatee? Tom, I, I think you really have put your finger on it because that is the one piece that's missing from the banking sector, large bank mergers. We see them coming. There's some regulatory issues that still need to be addressed. Yeah. Will, will you think they'll be fin- those will be addressed by the first quarter of next year? So can we see a U.S. Yeah. bank or and a BB&T look to merge with other large banks? Or could we ever do a merger of equals in Ohio? Do you put a Fifth Third and a Key Corp together or a Huntington? Right. And a key- that's what we need to see. And I think that's coming on the board. It, and, and, it's going to take a little time. I mean, John, there was a point where Gerard Cassidy was daily, hourly on the streets of Boston, <laughs> and you could turn around 360 degrees and see seven bank towers. And then all that's of a sudden correct. it was four bank towers. And then it was one name. What was the final name of Bank of, like Fenway Banking or something like that? I mean, everybody merged with everybody else and it all became Bank of America. We have a moment of silence here for Fleet Bank. We need a moment of silence for how you framed M&A. A combinator and a combinatee. Yeah, it's, uh, that's it's very British. I've not, I've not heard of that one before. Gerard, we're talking I, about I a structured story. Wait, I can't concentrate today. The Duchess Why? of Sussex is oh, with no, child. No, no, no. I, I was so happy you'd gone 54 minutes without even talking about it. We're not doing it, Tom. We're okay. not covering it. What's we're the not, name going to be? No. Do we know don't encourage no, it. No, no, no. We don't know the name. No, no. Gerard, Banks. Tom Banks. We're doing Banks. Edward? (laughs) Charles. What about Gerald? Stop it. No, come on, Jared. Cassidy, help me out here. You always name the first kid after the richest grandfather, right? That's That's a cardinal rule. So (laughs) it's got to be Charles, right? (laughs) There you go. Who wins earnings season, Gerard? I would say so far uh, what we're seeing, the J.P. Morgan numbers were strong. Bank America's numbers today are also very strong. So, and, and even City. I, the, so who wins? And the, the universal bank model appears to be outperforming right now, the regional bank model. We only have PNC so far in the regionals, and they, their numbers came in a little light on loan growth. But we'll see what happens with the rest of the regional banks. But right now the universal bank models put up good numbers here in the third quarter is your pick for the next 12 months still b of a 
I think so, John. I would stick with Bank America. If you believe that the U.S. economy is going to grow as fast as we do, Bank America is very well positioned to capture that. Plus, remember, these banks are still giving back excess capital, and Bank America is of the universal banks is giving back the least amount of capital relative to Citi, J.P. Morgan, and Wells, and I think they're going to up that number in CCAR 2019. Drug Cassidy, thank you so much for the RBC Capital uh, Markets. We spoke with our Benjamin Harvey in Istanbul, uh, running all of our Bloomberg News operation uh, uh, in Turkey uh, and out of uh, that part of the Middle East earlier. And now, without question, our interview of the day, and this on the uproar over the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi, uh, and as the Turks have said, uh, the murder of Mr. Khashoggi as well. John Sfakianikas joins us. He has been on the show any number of times with the Gulf Research Center Foundation, their economics research uh, director. John, I have visited your offices in Riyadh. You are a student of the royal family. Does, um, does, the, does the prince have the support of his royal family? I think he has the support of the royal family, and I also think he does have the support of his father. And that's why the father decided that um, he has to send a personal envoy to Turkey, and that was the governor of the western province, Prince Khaled um, El-Faisal. And at the same time, they have agreed to investigate the matter, the Saudis themselves, and begin an investigation on the issue of how Jamal Khashoggi has disappeared and what's going mm-hmm. on. If the Turks say that there is audio, there are images, etc., 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 does Saudi Arabia accede to those items of evidence, or do they have to find their own evidence? It's a very good question. I think that um, it will be difficult for the Saudis to demonstrate that they have convincing evidence to the contrary if the Turks do share this evidence with the wider media. And at the same time, it could be that uh, there is an agreement, because if things continue as is, things are going to heat up, and uh, both sides are going to begin to reciprocate. And by both sides, I mean the West, the U.S., U.K., France. Um, So Saudi Arabia needs to show and demonstrate clearly that they are looking into this affair, and they're trying to find solutions and um, find answers to the many questions of how he disappeared. John, let's have the ugly conversation of leverage. The President of the United States said he's prepared to take action. Saudi Arabia has hardly stood back. They say in a not-so-veiled threat that they vow to retaliate um, and talk about their standing in the global economy. Um, John, what does action and retaliation look like and what kind of leverage does Saudi Arabia have to ensure that the kind of action the United States takes isn't that harmful to the kingdom? Right. I I think, Jonathan, that if uh, things um, do continue uh, in this heated fashion, we've seen already an editorial by uh, Saudi who is very close to the center of power, Turki al-Dakhil, who did say that um, oil could be used as a weapon. And of course, God forbid, if this happens at this point, when the global economy is going through some first reverberations of challenges in terms of growth, we see oil prices at 150 or $200 a barrel. I don't think that the U.S. will take that quite lightly. 
And uh, it could very well then retaliate and say, look, uh, business comes second, and we're going to have a general embargo. And then Saudi Arabia is found in a position similar to that of Russia. I don't think we're going to get there. I think that there will be cooler heads that dominate both in Saudi and the rest of the world. And I think at the end, um, the, the perpetrators or the people involved um, in the possible uh, event of uh, murdering this journalist um, could be found guilty and given to international justice. Again, this is all speculation. Well, the alleged murder of this journalist um, that we are discussing at the moment is just one of a range of issues that the Crown Prince has opened up for the international stage to question. And I wonder, John, over the last couple of years, the Crown Prince has gone on a fantastic charm offensive with several leaders across the developed world and many multinational companies as well. How much harm has been done with this specific incidence on the international stage for Saudi standing? Well, there is no doubt that uh, when you have a major conference taking place literally next week and um, many of the global leaders, uh, businessmen who were planning to attend, including uh, Jamie Dimon, have decided not to do so, uh, it is a blow to Saudi Arabia's image-making to the rest of the world, and that has to be taken quite mm. seriously. Uh, mistakes are made all the time. And the reform is excellent. The change that is happening in Saudi Arabia is very much welcomed over the last few years. But a blunder like this should not curtail and hold back what Saudi Arabia can attain. And so I do believe that uh, cooler heads will prevail. John, thank you so much. John Fakionikas, Golf Research, uh, with the Golf Research Center Foundation. And now for our interview of the day within Bloomberg News. Uh, Vivian Neerim is out of Yale University in Art History and holds court in Riyadh, which is a uh, challenging assignment in any time, but ever more so uh, right now. Vivian joins us from uh, Riyadh. Vivian, what has been the reaction of Saudi officials? What has been the reaction of the domestic and elite media in Saudi Arabia to these announcements uh, by the prince, by the king and by the government? Well, up until today, we had seen a very firm narrative that uh, Jamal Khashoggi, you know, this prominent Saudi journalist who was last seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, had left the consulate shortly after he entered. And they had continued to reiterate that narrative despite uh, repeated statements from Turkish authorities that uh, they believed that Khashoggi had been murdered inside the consulate. And we've seen, you know, a great amount of resistance in Saudi media and a great amount of resistance from Saudis who say that they do not trust the Turkish statements, and many people feel that this is an attack on Saudi Arabia. It can't possibly be true, um, and there's been quite a lot of pushback. Um, we saw that shift a bit today with an announcement from uh, an anonymous Saudi official that the kingdom has actually begun an internal investigation into the disappearance of Khashoggi now. Um, I mean, that's a bit subtle, but what it basically shows is that they have started to look inwards as well. And so they're considering another narrative that perhaps right. he didn't just walk out of the consulate shortly after he entered. Vivian, can you explain for people that may not be following this as closely as you are or we are, what are the implications for this, for U.S.-Saudi relations? 
Right. I mean, this has turned out to be a much bigger story than many people thought it would be at the start. You know, Jamal Khashoggi was very well known um, among people who, who knew Saudis and who knew Saudi Arabia. But I don't think anyone expected that it was going to have quite so many consequences in the business world and for the Saudi economy. Um, and it's testing the really long-running ties between Saudi Arabia and uh, and the United States. Khashoggi was a U.S. resident, um, and the U.S. has been demanding answers from Saudi Arabia. And meanwhile, there's been quite a strong reaction from the business community. There's a very uh, massive... Uh, investment conference that's coming up yeah. in uh, Riyadh or later this month, yeah. and we've seen really big names pulling out of it, including yeah. Jamie Dimon um, and uh, Richard Branson, just saying right. we're not going to be coming. Vivian, the distinction here, and I understand the delicacies of you being domiciled in Riyadh as we speak. I don't know if you're aware, but 29 minutes ago, the President of the United States, let me get this accurately. i got to do a refresh on the computer. 29 minutes ago, the President put out a tweet where it is language from Saudi Arabia, quote, to our Saudi Arabian citizen, unquote. And you just stated, as many others have stated, that Mr. Khashoggi was an American citizen. Can he be both? Is he one? Is he other? Where does that sit within Saudi Arabia right now? So he was a U.S. resident, but not a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, he was actually a Saudi citizen who had been living in a self-imposed exile for about a year. So he left the kingdom under fears that he would be detained right. there or something like that. And he had <clears throat> moved to the U.S. and was residing there. Within this is his disappearance. What will the internal probe be? I mean, is it a police probe? Is it a special probe? Do we have any idea from your reporting of who who will be the who of the probe? So what we were told is that the Saudi King Salman himself uh, ordered over the weekend that this probe begin, uh, and it will be done by the Saudi public prosecutor who reports directly to the king. Um, so we don't know necessarily what that will entail. We were told that it will be very speedy, uh, that they've been told to do it as quickly as possible, and that we could hear some sort of announcement within days uh, of what they conclude. Vivian, why is the probe itself significant? Well, I think it's that bit that it shows they are rethinking or reconsidering um, the previous narrative, which they had really strongly stuck to, which was that absolutely nothing happened, you know, to Khashoggi at the consulate. And we had absolutely nothing to do with this um, this disappearance. The fact that they are sort of, you know, potentially looking inwards, um, you know, looking for uh, the story, what could have happened, it sh- could show that they might be perhaps willing to make some sort of partial admission of guilt, analysts are saying, that could then still absolve higher authorities, or they could perhaps open up the way for them to blame rogue elements within the state for anything that might have happened. It's still up in the air, and it's too early to say um, what the fate is of Khashoggi. They're not admitting it publicly yet um, or saying anything publicly yet about that, but it basically is a sign that they are no longer sticking to this really, you know, tense narrative that he went in and he went out. Uh, Vivian, just finally, you've previously talked, uh, written about uh, Turkey and uh, their role in this. Can you just elaborate there a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated uh, relationship between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Um, they are both, you know, regional powers. Uh, they don't always get along. Um, you know, they do have diplomatic relations. It's not as bad as it is with mm-hmm. other countries in the region. But they, they're tense. You know, uh, Turkey has traditionally supported a particular kind of political Islam that the Saudi government, you know, believes to be a danger to their security and stability. Um, and Turkey has sided right. with Qatar um, in this recent dispute between Qatar and the other Gulf states, which Saudi Arabia also is very offended by. So naturally, when these kind of you know anonymous leaks started coming right. out from Turkish authorities accusing Saudi Arabia of these very grisly allegations, a lot of Saudis were immediately distrustful of yeah. that. You know, Turkey is not our friend. We can't trust what right. they're saying. Vivian, thank you so much for joining us today on Short Notice. Vivian Neerum with that question, the article of the day for Bloomberg News. I'll get it out on social on uh, Saudi Arabia setting up some form of investigation of the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi as well. Vivian Neerum with Bloomberg News in Riyadh. Gary Gensler is, of course, we know him as the uh, former head of the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or better known as the CFTC. Former Undersecretary of the Treasury for Domestic Finance, as well as for Financial Markets, former Goldman Sachs uh, executive, and uh, currently uh, at the uh, Media Center at uh, MIT, at the Media Lab. Gary, thanks very much for your being here and for your patience. We were talking about debt just before President Donald Trump uh, was speaking. And I want to really try to get you to crystallize that. Should we be concerned about all of the government debt, corporate debt, and individual debt that has been created? And looks like interest rates are at least moving up, not down. How's that good for people that are in debt? I think that the high level of debt that we have in America these last 10 years, it competes with the high level of debt we had in the 1920s. And so just that, it's about three and a half times the economy. 360% of our economy was about $70 trillion of corporate government and household debt. We've done some good things in the last 10 years. There's a little less household debt as mortgage debt has come down after the housing bubble, but we've backfilled and we have a lot more government debt and corporate debt. So I, I, I think it's something to be uh, aware of. We normally have lower levels of debt than we've had the last 10 years. Well, does that make it more concerning if there were to be an economic downturn or whether there would be some shock to the you know, economic system that then creates a crisis? Uh, Debt does uh, provide a lot of opportunity for uh, businesses to innovate, for individuals to buy that home and send their kids off to college, but we have too high a level of student debt, for instance. And yes, in downturns, then debt cuts the other way. It's great on the upside. It's rough on the downside. Gary, I want to talk about the Goldman Sachs management. If you don't want to answer this, I understand that you may want to step aside here, but you are one of the few people on the planet that have actually lived the shift from banking M&A over to FIC, over to trading and all. You're one of the very few people that's actually done what a lot of people blather about, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about. How big a shift is it from the smooth banking world over to rough and tumble trading where you can enjoy watching the bid walk away in seconds? 
Well, there is a difference. I started in the merger and acquisition area at mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs, and then I was honored to be asked to go over to the uh, fixed income and currency trading. What do they so do? Take I, you into a room and say, "We've got bad news, Gary." <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> no, no. There was there was a time when uh, there was some of us uh, younger partners were asked, "Would we?" Be willing to yeah. take the risk and move around. But you're right. The time horizons are shorter. A merger transaction, you might be negotiating over months. And, yeah. and the markets move in seconds or nanoseconds. And so um, uh, it, there is a different uh, time horizon. Right. Um, but the people that, when I was there 20 plus years ago, the people right. on the trading side were, were excellent. And they, they allowed me to... Be part so of it. distill the modern, uh, the modest uproar of Mr. Solomon taking over, and he's not like those guys. How do you how do you distill that? Well, in any firm, even if it's not on Wall Street, there's multiple cultures, and in what you're mm -hmm. highlighting is there's the trading culture and the banking culture, and sometimes it ebbs and flows. And even at Goldman Sachs, when I was there, it was initially the the bankers, John Weinberg, John Whitehead, that mm -hmm. led the firm, and then Bob Rubin and others who are excellent from the trading side, mm -hmm. you know, ascended and, and uh, helped lead the firm and guide the firm. So it ebbs and flows. Gary, yes, I mentioned in the introduction, you're a senior advisor and director at the uh, MIT Media Lab, plus you're a senior lecturer at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Your course, you teach a course on blockchain technology. Is it standing room only? Uh, sometimes it's blockchain and money. money. And uh, the MIT community is very engaged in this subject. Of course, it's MIT. And we're really trying to find ground truths. How much of this technology that underlines Bitcoin can really be used to change the world of finance or medical records or supply chains. And in, just quickly, in the class, in, in the course that you teach, is there one thing you want or recommend that the students take away from so that they can further their understanding? Because it's a topic with a lot of supposed experts. So I'm really trying to teach ground truths, that they have critical reasoning skills to sort of separate the hype and the maximalists that say it will solve every problem and say, well, how will this actually be applied, this database technology to move something of value, money, on the internet without a central bank or commercial bank? How, how can that technology actually be used as a catalyst for change and ultimately for them to be entrepreneurs and start their businesses? Um, yeah. So critical reasoning skills. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you Gary so much Gansel, for having me here. Wide ranging? I thought he was going to say that the blockchain technology makes it easier for the money to leave Tom Keene's pocket and Got that. end up all over the We're world. Blockchain, blockchain no, no, intuition. we want to protect Tom. Yeah, no, it'll be. It's a huge debate. Well, Gary Gensler, thank you so much. I know you're off to thank you a so seminar much. now here at uh, Boomer, the former uh, chairman of the CFTC, among other duties, and of course his public service to the nation and Treasury a few years ago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.